be here today. My wife and I moved to Colorado, to the Denver area in Aurora about a year ago from England. We had been serving there for seven years. And, um, you know, it's, <laughs> it's interesting to see how the Lord puts you on journeys that you never had on your prayer list. Um, never was on my prayer list to live in England, but uh, there we go. Um, it, the Lord just uh, worked that out as an amazing little adventure and a story. But, you know, my wife and I became believers when we were 18, and we were living up in Portland, Oregon, and uh, she was my girlfriend at the time. And uh, the rock band that I was playing in needed some help with the rent on the house that we had acquired. And so the keyboard player had some friends that um, needed a place to stay, so they moved in. And they had just become Christians. And so uh, for the first time in my life, I was presented strongly with the gospel 24-7 in my face. Um, they would go up in the attic and they'd have their shout and prayer meetings and we'd be down in the basement practicing and smoking dope and, you know, it's like heaven and hell in a little house there in Portland. And after about six weeks, I just couldn't stand it. I just couldn't stand it. And finally, I just said, you know, what's, what's with you guys? And they said, well, Jesus is coming back, and you better be ready, because if you're not ready, you're, 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 you're going to go to hell. <laughs> I'm just going, get out of here. But all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit, I mean, all it takes is one of those times where the switch triggers. And I started thinking, man, what if they're right? No, they can't be right. They're crazy. But what if they're right? Now, they can't be right. There's no way they can be right. Everybody's right. They're wrong. Yeah, but what if they're right? And it's like the Holy Spirit just working on me. Finally, I had to just humble myself and come to them and go, um, um, suppose you have a friend that kind of wants to do what you guys do. You know, How would you go about telling them what to do so they can be like you? I mean, you know, because you're backtracking. And, and you can see through all that. You know, I'm an idiot. So they said, well, let's go upstairs and we'll show you. <laughs> so whoop, up to the attic we went. And uh, I accepted the Lord. And, you know, God began a work on the inside and on my girlfriend. And um, we both became believers that day. No lightning, no thunder, no dramatic, you know, um, hair color change like Charleston Heston, you know, but it, it was just things began to slowly change. And eventually I quit the band because your eyes get open to the whole underworld of what's going on in the rock world. And then um, six months later, we decided to get married. So we got married at age 18. Don't do this. And it's been over 50 years now. She's outside there, not because we had a fight, but she's <laughs> heard me already twice. Yeah, she can't stand it. Um, in 1981, um, we ended up starting a Bible study in the north part of Phoenix, Arizona. And that turned into a Calvary Chapel. And so I was there for 29 years pastoring. 
Calvary Chapel, North Phoenix. And then in, um, in 10 years ago, we turned the church over and that freed my wife and I to go around and help out other pastors and wives. And um, that's what en- ended up le- leading us over to England to help out and then go to Europe and, and just help out pastors and wives there. I pastored a little Calvary Chapel in the southwestern part of England called uh, Exeter, the name of the city. And, um, but two years ago, I had a heart attack and it changed the focus. So we eventually transitioned the church to a British pastor, because that's the point, is raise up British leadership and release them. And then eventually we made our way to come back here, and, and now we're in Colorado. So we're a part of this ministry called Poyman. It's a group of about 11 pastors and wives that uh, their, their heart is to come alongside other pastors and minister and assist and help out, whether it's a transition or a train wreck or just simply to fill in, uh, taking our ministry experience and seeing how we might be able to help them. And so there's some information on the table out there if you're uh, interested in that. Poyman is a Greek word. Uh, it's actually poimen in the Greek, but it means shepherd or pastor in the, in the New Testament. Um, also, um, quite a while ago, I did a, a, a study, a Wednesday night study on 1 Corinthians 13, and we looked at the attributes of God's love, and that turned into a book form, and that book is out there if you're interested as well. But tonight, our focus is in Matthew chapter 7. So if you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to continue in the study in Matthew as Pastor Sean has uh, been on his heart to go through the gospel of Matthew here as he makes his way through the scripture. And today we're in that last chapter of the Sermon on the Mount section. Matthew, of course, was one of the first uh, disciples called by Jesus. His name was Levi. Hebrew uh, name was Levi. And It was in his heart to really reach his fellow Hebrew and show them that Jesus was indeed the Messiah that they had been waiting for. And so as he structures his gospel, he has this in mind. The Holy Spirit put this on his heart. And so as he structures his gospel, as you've already heard, I'm sure, through Pastor Sean, uh, there are particular groupings that he puts together. And... In chapter 4 of Matthew's Gospel, verses 23 through 25, we have a little summary of Jesus' earthly ministry, especially in Galilee, before he launches into a collection of some of the main teachings that Jesus did while he was on earth. So uh, chapter 4, verses 23 through 25 says this, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, from Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And so Matthew says, okay, he he taught, he, he preached, and he healed. 
And it's interesting to see how the structure flows because he starts off saying, here in, on, I remember that time on the mountain there when Jesus had us and he was teaching and there were other crowds that were kind of joining in and overhearing. Jesus is talking to the disciples and he wants to share with them the heart of the Father. This is what true righteousness looks like. Only God is truly righteous. And of course, Jesus being God incarnate is, is just the, the live out of what that really looks like. Not like the Pharisees um, who had this outward righteousness but were, were just absolute um, uh, posers. I mean, they, they were doing all the outward things, but they weren't true in their heart to the Lord. They thought they were because they were doing outward things, but they missed the true righteousness. So I have taken the chapter 7 and broken it into three sections. And so the first section is verses 1 through 12, the willingness to help others. And that section ends up in verse 12 with what's called the golden rule. Most of us have heard that. But Jesus says, therefore, in verse 12. And because of that word, therefore, you should always ask, what is it therefore? Okay? And that means you look prior to it and see the context. And then, and so in this, um, do to others what you would have them do unto you, all of this ties in with verses 1 through 12. And I think that's a context there, and I call it willingness to help others. And we'll talk about that more. The second section is verses 13 to 23, and that section is going to be entitled, The Way is Narrow. Because we talk about the narrow gate, the narrow way, those who would pull you off the way, uh, those who, who um, will not enter because although they had outward right, righteousness, they missed the relationship. And then verses 24 through 29, the work of obedience, which is the focus and the illustration on building your house on the, on the bedrock and not on sand through obeying what Jesus said. So we'll talk more about that. But let's start with a word of prayer and let's launch into um, an overview, a flyover really of chapter 7 of Matthew. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to look into your word and we need to hear your voice. You know what's going on in our hearts, in our life. You know the things that have happened to us. You know the things we're going through right now and you know what is ahead in the future. Lord, we have gathered here to hear from you. So may you open our ears and open our hearts to receive. And we set this time before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Follow along with me, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 12, and then we'll break that down as we start off. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, 
And do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he, not give, him a, will he give him a snake instead? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? In everything, therefore... Treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. So I've called this first section called the willingness to help others. And in verses 1 through 5, you see this focus on seeing clearly to help others. Jesus doesn't cancel out the need to help others. But he does give a warning that you will not be able to help others if your heart is in a critical place, a critical spirit toward others, where it's just judging others on, on the outward appearance and, and um, you, you always think the worst first. Because the word judge in the Greek means to conclude, to distinguish, to decide, to pronounce judgment upon. So often we make a determination on a person's character based upon the first sight we see at a distance. And it's so wrong because that's not how God views us. When God sees us, he doesn't just see the behavior, he sees the cause. And so much of what goes on are symptoms and not really the cause. You know, there's just, today in our society, there is such division. There is such animosity and anger and hatred and division. Everybody has a cause, and if you're not with my cause, I'm canceling you out of my life. It's called cancel culture. And it's just, everybody is so angry. But understand, they're trying to find hope. And they're, and they're hanging on to their biases. They're hanging on to their opinions. They're hanging on to their causes with such passion because they want hope. And Jesus isn't there hope? And it's not enough. It will never fill their life. Some people even put their hopes in, in politics. And, you know, it reminds me, politics is a compound word. Poly meaning many, and ticks meaning bloodsuckers. And so, if your hope is in politics, it's not going to fill your life. It's going to drain your life. But when your hope is in Christ... He is the peace in the midst of the storm. He's the one that can give you the ability to see your own sin in its true light. Because that has to be clear before the Lord, before you can help out other people. And God indeed wants us to help out others. For he says in verse 2, For in the way that you judge you will be judged, and by your standard of measure. What are you using as the standard? Your bias? Your, present, your, your, your prejudice? Your opinion? Wait a second. 
What's God say? Because he's, he's absolute truth. The Pharisees had their own opinions and they had their own commentaries on their rabbis from centuries past even. And you know what? It was believed that the commentaries of the rabbis had more um, relatability to the people than the scriptures themselves. So they had taken their biases and their opinions and elevated them to the same level of scripture, even greater than scripture. And sometimes people can do the same thing. Sometimes Christians can do the same thing. How they were raised or the culture that they grew up in or their own biases are so strong that they are, are held higher value than the scriptures themselves. And we have to be careful that we don't do that. So Jesus is trying to tell his disciples here, listen, don't be living in a critical spirit toward others because you'll never be able to help them like I want them helped. You realize that we weren't the prize when the Lord came to call us. We were living in sin. He chased us down, as it were. He, he wanted to apprehend us. He wanted to bring us into his family. I, I mean, I, I look back and I know the Lord was apprehending me and he was trying to, to, to get me. He was chasing me down. Finally, he boxed me in. <laughs> and these, these Christians were in my face. I mean, I, I don't think I'd ever come to the Lord unless it was in my face 24-7 for six weeks. But that was what the Lord used. And I thank him for it. At the time, I didn't. But I look back now, over 51 years later, thank you, Jesus. You know, Jesus warned the disciples about the last days that it would get ugly for believers. He said, because iniquity shall abound, the love of many will grow cold. The word iniquity means lawlessness. And the word love is the Greek word agape. Now, who is given agape to indwell them? The believer. Here's the warning. When you see lawlessness abound, the real danger is you harden your heart against the people you should reach. When you hold bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart, it's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. You're the one that suffers. And when you look on the news or you see in the, in the media those people that are really just completely out of control and they feel like they have a right to destroy, they have a right to cancel out, they have a right to uh, do all criminal activity, and, and you can say, okay, that's wrong. But those are symptoms. Each of those people used to be two or three years old at one point. They were little kids. What happened? And you have to think, what happened in their life to bring them to this point? Lord, help me see them like you see them. Because they're redeemable, just like you were redeemable. And, and we have to really, if we're going to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, we have to see them as the Lord Jesus would see them. In verses 3 and 4, he, said, he gives two questions. Why do you look at the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you don't notice the log that's in your own eye? 
He says, the word look here is, is to observe from a distance. But the word notice is to really take deep consideration over. And so we judge people from a glance, but we don't take deep consideration for, for the issues that possibly might be there. I mean, it's, an, it's a ridiculous illustration, and, and, and sure, it's excessive, but that's the point. A log is a ceiling beam. A speck is a speck of sawdust. And so just the whole picture is crazy. Oh, let me help you, clunk. You know, I mean, there's no way to help anyone because you can't see number one, plus you're going to hurt the guy, you know, much less look weird. But verse 5, carefully notice this. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Jesus isn't against helping others. He wants that. Actually, Paul says the same thing in Galatians 6, verses 1 through 5. Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, following the Holy Spirit's lead, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Because if you have a critical spirit, you're not going to restore them at all. You're just going to throw them under the bus. Each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone and not in regard to another, for each one will bear his own load. So as you go to help others, we come to verse 6. There's going to be some that don't want to be helped. That's why he says, Do not give what is holy to dogs. Do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Dogs and hogs. What's this? It's an illustration Jesus is using from life to bring out a principle. As you seek to want to help others, there's going to be some who don't want what you have, even though it's holy, even though it's precious. The gospel is precious. It's, It's what God has chosen to save those who are lost. The power of the gospel the righteousness revealed through the gospel, and yet people will just throw it away. And so understand, disciples, that there's going to come times when you're going to want to help out and people are going to reject it. So be discerning. Some would not receive it. And then you have verses 7 through 12 where Jesus goes into asking, seeking, and knocking. And, and as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, you know, if there's a context of helping others, which ends in verse 12, asking, seeking, and knocking is really focused on asking the Lord how to help people. How, how do I come in and, 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 and help them? It says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. And by the way, ask, seek, and knock are in the continuous present, which means ask asking. Ask and continue to ask. 
Seek and continue to seek. Knock and continue to knock. And the words are not just in the, uh, the, the present um, continuous action, but they're also intensive because it begins with asking. You ask with your words, then you seek with your heart and mind, and then you knock using all your strength and resources, pressing against obstacles that might be in the way. Now, this section also was used in the context of prayer in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 11. But um, here, it's in the context of, I need to come to the Lord to know what to do. Some of you may have wayward children. Some of you, um, you raised your children and you, you did everything you could. You, you brought them to church, you give them devotionals, you pray to them every night, and now they get in their teenagers and they're wandering and then they're in their 20s and they're gone and, and it's like they've hardened their heart against you. You're like number one A stupid to them and, you're, and, and you can't believe it. And you're praying for them and, they, and it's like not working, it seems. But what does Jesus say? Ask asking. Continuously ask. Don't give up. Don't allow your heart to become hardened and you let Satan win on both sides. Because I've watched that happen in families. So much hurt, so much offense, so much anger, so that when the child maybe starts wanting to reconcile, the parents will have nothing to do with it. What a sad, sad picture where God is now answering all those earlier prayers and working on the child and bringing them around. And now the parents are filled with resentment and bitterness and they'll have nothing to do with it. And Satan is one. Be careful. And actually, here's what the Lord says. Trust the goodness of God. Because he says here, what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? I mean, this is like, um, you know, what, what you're doing is you're, you're insulting the child. You're mocking the child. The child is hungry. Here, chew on a rock, kid. I mean, what kind of dad is that? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? And he's referring to a poisonous snake, not just, you know, some bull, bull snake or something. And that would be injurious. It would be endangering the child. What kind of hard-hearted dad would that be? And so he uses even the natural man as an illustration, but then he compares it. He says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? And that, if you highlight things in your Bible, highlight those three words. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who trust him, to those who ask him? And I want to ask you tonight, do you believe that God is good to you right now? Or do you believe that he's good, but he won't be good to me because I haven't been very obedient? And you don't understand then the goodness of the heart of the Father. 
Because his goodness is so much better than anything we can comprehend. And we'll never see the fullness of his goodness until we surrender. Until we take the, the keys of our life, as it were. Everything that represents our life. Your, your, you know, your keys represent your car and your house and all the different rooms. Maybe, maybe your storage unit or whatever else. Well, this kind of represents you. But until you really lay down everything about your life before the Lord, you'll never experience the fullness of the goodness of God. Because when you lay it down, you're saying, I am going to trust the goodness of God to me today. And I don't know what that looks like, but he is better than my best idea. Can I release my life in that kind of a level? And the answer is yes, you can. But it takes a step of faith. And you'll never see step two until you take step one. But you've got to take that step. You've got to release it to him. Ask asking. Seek seeking. Knock knocking. Because you're trusting in the goodness of God to do what's right at the right time and in the right way but you've got to let it go. Our God is, is good. That's his nature. He's not trying to be good. He is good. And so that's why Jesus says in verse 12, in everything, in everything, therefore, because of all that I've just said, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. It's active. It's proactive. It's not reactive. Don't do to them what you don't want them to do to you. That was popular at the time. But Jesus gives it in the proactive sense because we are to love even those that don't want to be loved. Love your enemies. Do good to those who do evil to you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you. Let's continue on. Verses 13 to 23 is called The Way is Narrow. And it all talks about entering in the way, either through the, as you come into the gate and then along the narrow way, which represents your Christian life. Here's what Jesus says in this section. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few that find it. Beware of the false prophets. And, and this is tied in here because they're the ones that want to push you off the narrow way and onto the wide way. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but to inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they, so every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, so then you will know them by their fruits. And speaking of a destruction, in verse 21, Jesus continues and he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And you know, when I read this section, I want you to think, 
I want you to think of Judas Iscariot because he's hearing this. And this really represents him. Because listen to what Jesus said. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Remember when Jesus sent the disciples out two by two? You realize Judas Iscariot was sent out with another of the disciples? And he performed miracles. He proclaimed the kingdom. He went through all the outward actions, but he never let the truth of the gospel penetrate his heart. He had ulterior motives, and those ulterior motives blocked the gospel from having any effect on him. And the same is true today. There are many that God may even use who are living in wickedness, And God will even use them because he cares about those who need to be helped and healed. It doesn't cancel out God's work upon them, but God will deal with the messenger if they're living in wickedness. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Notice he doesn't say, you never knew me. He says, I never knew you. Because Iniquity blocks fellowship. Iniquity blocks relationship. I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's a very intense section here. Don't be let off the way. Listen, the entryway is a, it's a narrow gate. And that means things have to be let go of. Things have to be, if, if you really want to get in, you're going to have to let go. Jesus said to his disciples, if any man follow me, let him deny himself. We're not talking the good life as far as physical things. We're talking about not having a me first selfish heart. Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. These are heavy sections, but they're the truth. And as we come to this, the end of verse 23 here, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, then he goes right into talking about the illustrations of the two houses and the destruction of the house that was built upon sand. Let's, let's read it here, verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew. Of course, we know what that is here. And slammed against that house. I love that term because that's really what happens when a storm hits your life. It slams against your life. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell and great was its fall. And Matthew ends the teaching. 
And then the, re- then the reaction. Jesus, when he had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Put yourself in the first century, and you want to build a house. There's no backhoes. There's no bulldozers. John Deere's not going to help you. How did they find bedrock? With sticks and shovels. Digging down to find bedrock. That's hard, hard work. And it's not just one hole. You're finding bedrock to be the foundation of your house. And that becomes an illustration of your Christian life. There are times it's going to be difficult. There are times it's going to be hard. There are times it's going to take a lot of sacrifice, a lot of spiritual blisters, but it's worth it. Because, you know, the bedrock of our life is Jesus. He's what our life is founded upon. Every corner of our house has to be founded upon the bedrock. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11 says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ, or Jesus Christ. Building your house isn't going to stop the rains, nor the floods, nor the winds to slam against your life. God allows those things because it proves his work. You know, when the architects drew up the Golden Gate Bridge and they presented it, there were so many people that says that will not hold any weight. That's ridiculous. So uh, the architects and the engineers had to build a scale model and they had to use all the physics and uh, the, the ratios to test the Golden Gate Bridge with weight. But the weight was allowed on the bridge not to destroy it, but to prove it. God allows winds and rain and floods to come against our life at times, not to destroy us, but to prove what he's done in us and to show you how he can sustain you. How can we ever know the depth of the comfort God can bring if he doesn't allow tribulation to affect us so we can sense his deeper comfort underneath? Deuteronomy 33 says, Underneath are the everlasting arms. I can look back on my life and I know the deep, deep, deep trials that I have been in at times. And it's through those difficult times I have sensed the deeper comfort of God and the sustaining power of the Holy Spirit. I, will have, I would have never known how deep that is unless I, that trial had been allowed in my life. Does that make sense? So it's not that God is mad at me. It's not that he's trying to destroy me. Only Satan's trying to destroy me. But God allows the rains. God allows the storms. And we'll talk about that next week as well in chapter 8. Digging deep. 
Well, what about the other person who built his house on sand? You ever look at a microscopic uh, or maybe an electron microscope of, of sand? It's all these little pieces of rock, but there's no cohesion. If the absolute truth is Jesus Christ, the bedrock, you know what sand is? Little truths here and there that have no cohesion. How many people today have built their life on philosophies of truth and they think it's going to sustain them? It's sand. And it's shifting because there's no cohesion. There's no absolute truth. Jesus said, great was its fall because it's an eternal fall, not just a stumble. Serious, serious things. And it's interesting that Jesus put himself as the judge over in the earlier verses when people come to him and he says, depart from me. He is the final one. Not St. Peter at the gate, but Jesus, the final judge. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching and he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Man, the scribes would just you know, repeat what everybody else would say. All the rabbis wrote in the earlier commentaries, you know, and, and they would say, this is the authority. Well, yeah, I think it's the authority because this rabbi says this. Oh, of, course, of course, this rabbi says this over here. And, and so it was always like, who knows what's going on? There's no absolutes. Jesus comes in and says, this is how it is. And there was a sense of real authority. Dude, it was God incarnate. There better be authority. Amazing. Imagine, what would that have been like? Listening to Jesus teach God incarnate, the word of God, telling the word. Wow, that's a YouTube moment. But we're going to see Jesus face to face as a believer. Well, as an unbeliever as well, they're going to face it. But you know, the catching away of the church is going to happen on a day called today. Because in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive and remain shall be snatched away, caught up to meet them in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's going to happen on a day called today, like today. Because it's not going to happen tomorrow because you wake up tomorrow and it's today. You realize that. It's going to happen on a day called today. Present tense. It will be present tense. You were born on a day called today. And your mom knows it. And you're going to pass through this life on a day called today. It's going to be your last day. you realize your life is only as long as the dash between the year you were born and the year you die? That little dash, that's your life. What difference could I make in my dash? Take today, surrender to the Lord, turn your keys over to the Lord of your life, and let Him do whatever He's going to do. And just take it today, because His grace is sufficient for today. His goodness is full today. Lord, show your goodness to me today. I'm not going to worry about tomorrow, but I just release it to you. And then just see what happens.
You got to take step one, and then you'll see step two. Stop asking for step five and step ten, but just take step one, and that's that surrender. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this time in your word. There's so much that's here in this chapter. There's so much of what Jesus said that we're still learning about. We need you. We're dependent on you. And we can't comprehend how good you are and how good the Father is. So open our heart, open our eyes to that goodness and help us to trust you like we've never trusted you before. And Father God, for those that have never surrendered their lives to Christ, may you move upon them, those we're praying for, those who may be even listening online right now, or those who may be hearing this study later. May you give them courage and faith by which to believe that they would take that step and and surrender their life to you, God, and, and repent of their sin and receive Jesus as their Savior and start on this brand new creation, the life as a new creature. So God, it's in your hands. Amaze us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.